When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Coming up on this week's show, a rare piece of Sonic the Hedgehog history has been found. The museum that reunites long-lost retro video games. And we go inside holistic design with Andrew Greenberg. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our great mates at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books, we'll tell you more about it in just a bit, and one of their most ambitious books today, I'm Too Young to Die, The Ultimate Guide to First-Person Shooters, covering the early experimental years of the genre that now rules the world. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 366. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And very nice to be joining us for another hour-ish, or like about an hour and a half if we're honest, of that retro gaming goodness where we bring it up to speed on all the big stories from the world of retro gaming and technology from over the last week. And of course, we bring you a very special guest on the podcast in the second half of the show. And uh, Ravi has got a big announcement to make right at the start of this week's podcast. Oh, yes. So uh, I've been organising a show for the Amiga computer, uh, an Amiga UK show, because there's not been one in the UK for a long time. You know, uh, we mentioned that we're going around the world to different Amiga events. We've been going to Germany, which is really busy. We've been going to Ireland, and I thought I'd take it upon myself and do the mad task of uh, setting up an Amiga show. It's... uh, it's been quite a, quite a kind of momentous thing that I've been doing and trying to get it all together and also organising it with a venue. But um, if you want to come along, check AmigaShow.com and it is called Kickstart, the UK Amiga Expo. And we're going to hold it a Meadow Lane football ground. So this is going to be a football ground full of Amiganess. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. It's going to be Joe's first Amiga show he's ever been to. Who says I'm coming, eh? Hey? <laughs> no, I'll, 100- I was gonna say it, I'll it? be there. I'll 100% be there. I'll be there with bells and whistles. And I'm really excited for this. I think it's going to be really cool. Not only one of my best friends is putting it on, which is incredible, but also bringing the Amiga scene to Nottingham and also just kind of big retro game scene in Nottingham at the moment as well. Like it's as if like Ravi's really helping, you know, you've got a big hand in kind of making Nottingham like a premiere kind of like retro scene again, which I really love. I hope so. Yeah, this is going to be on the 1st and 2nd of July. You know, we're we're starting out, so we're going to start um, a bit smaller and then we're going to grow bigger, hopefully in the future, and hopefully make this an annual thing. So uh, hopefully you could come and join us and we also will have a little retro hour table there as well. It is amazing that you're doing this because the last big Amiga UK show I went to was um, the one in Peterborough. Yeah, yeah. Like in, when, when was that, 2016, was it? 2015, I 2016? I think so. It, it was a while ago, but that was really cool. That was uh, Steve Kreisman that organised that one. Yeah, and um, that was one of the first shows that I went to with you. You know, we went to the Amsterdam one in the same year. But the fact there's been nothing on this scale, like a, a UK-wide Amiga event since... I know there was plans to do one, but then COVID came along and, you know, that didn't happen. But I think, you know, the fact that we go to Ireland most years and we go to Germany, it is great to see something on this scale 
a massive UK event that's going to be happening over an entire weekend. Um, I love the fact that it's happening in Nottingham as well, and I don't have to book a hotel for the weekend. <laughs> yeah, that's a bonus. But um, we've also got some cool people coming along, so we're going to have a, the DMA Designs team coming down as well, and they'll talk about Lemmings. So, yeah, check out uh, AmigaShow.com, and you'll be able to sign up to the newsletter, but also get tickets this Sunday because I'm going to appear on Amiga Bill stream and uh, do a live ticket announcement, which should be uh, good fun. Yeah, so you heard it here first. Um, Kickstart coming up, the massive Amiga Expo, um, 1st and 2nd of July uh, this summer in Nottingham. All the details at AmigaShow.com. And I've got a feeling there will be people who uh, you know, will travel from uh, various parts of the world to be there as well, Ravi. So um, let's make this the biggest Amiga event yet. I've got a good feeling about this. Now let's get into uh, this week's podcast. Now we have got an incredible guest that we're going to be talking to uh, this week. Now our guest this week is um, Andrew Greenberg. And we're going to be going inside a company that's been around for many years now, Holistic Design. Now, this was a really interesting one. We crammed a hell of a lot into an hour with Andrew, didn't we? It, it was really interesting because it's got the whole bridging part of um, the kind of computer game. So like coming from that board game world and then going into computer games, but then also going into the FMV world as well. And uh, the relation between strategy games and tabletop gaming and how that all works because you know he worked on some amazing titles like um he also worked on some of the warhammer titles which really mm. really fits into that but interestingly he did a a, a street fighter based um store uh, street fighter the storytelling game which was a street fighter based kind of tabletop game which uh i wonder have you ever heard of that joe what the street fighter tabletop game yeah, yeah. It, it it rings a bell but I don't know if it's just getting like mixed in with all the different tabletop games that are like coming out at the moment or like retro ones from the late 80s and early 90s. But I, I am looking forward to hearing about that because it does sound pretty interesting. Yeah, and it was also behind, you know, he worked on classics like Battles of Destiny and the massive Emperor of the Fading Suns games with the, you know, there's a new enhanced edition of that um, that came out in recent years. I think there's like been a, a new patch for it, a new update for it this week. And also we talk about the fact that he worked on, um, with Icom, you know, some of the Dracula games and also Star Trek as well and uh, Mall Tycoon. I don't know if you remember that one of the Tycoon games yeah, that came out back in the, uh, the early 2000s. It's interesting because like, uh, you know, Emperor of the uh, Fading Sun was a really different kind of strategy game and uh, mm. it was really quite deep. They had like aspects of religion in there. It was about future space races and you're kind of working in this, in this new world and, and, Amazingly, Mall Tycoon, it sounds like a very simple title, but it had that background dynamics of like finance and uh, a lot of stuff that was hidden in the game that made it really popular as well. I saw uh, Amiga Bill post the other day, actually, on um, on Facebook. He went to, uh, you know, Terminator 2, the Galleria, the shopping oh, mall yeah. to go into. The actual real mall is closing down this weekend. Oh, no way. Yes, it's literally went in there and took a few pictures of it all abandoned. All the oh, shops like, shut down and boarded up. Uh, is it Ace Combat? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a long gone, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, here in Nottingham, you know, we, we had a big shopping mall that shut down a couple of years ago. So I think a few of these businesses that run them could actually do with playing Mall Tycoon, I think, too, For sure. to get a few ideas and brush up their skills, I think. So, yeah, a really interesting chat with our special guest, Andrew Greenberg. He'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, before that, the first half of the podcast, we bring you up to speed on what's been happening in retro over the last week. And it has been a busy seven days in retro gaming. And this article, I've seen linked up quite 
in quite a few places, actually. And I think this is a really nice, if very ambitious idea. This is a museum in Japan that is aiming to reunite gamers with their original long-lost retro games. I really love the idea of this because of, you know, I, I think I romanticise it. It's a little bit inside my head, like that one day this could happen to me somehow. But yeah, this is a museum in Japan that is run by a, uh, a guy. He's actually a developer. He's actually a games developer himself. So he's in the industry, but he also runs this museum. So his name is uh, Junji Seki. Um, sorry if I've ruined that, but I'll, I'll call him Seki from now on. Um, but essentially what he's doing is he's he's opened this museum, which actually opened back in 2015, but it's only just started to pick up traction you know, online and stuff. And it is named the Cassette Museum in Tokyo. So, now, I've got a feeling that cassette in Japan that they call cartridges cassettes. That's by true. That is, I was going to clear yeah. that up. So yeah, so so they call so Famicom cassettes. So the original family computer, the NES, you know, the Famicom MES NES, as you know, if anybody doesn't know. Um, so we'll call them cartridges because it's just easier for us. Um, but what he does is it is an entire retro game collection in this museum, um, which I think is a cafe as well. And he's just got walls and walls and walls of these Famicom uh, cartridges. And uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Famicom cartridges, but they're about they're the same width of our NES ones, but they're about half as tall and they're quite colourful yeah. with the labels on. Um, and as as you know, I've got plenty of SNES and N64 games and stuff with people's names written on them and felt tip and stuff like that or across the labels sometimes. And what's unique about it is they are names written on the cartridges. And... What he does is he essentially invites the guests to come and have a look at it as you do in a museum. But if you think that the game is was your game from your childhood, then he will hand deliver the game to you um, and you buy it from him and you get to decide whatever cost it is. So you get to decide how much you buy from it and it goes back into the museum on the condition that you tell him the story of how you lost the game or how you sold the game, you know. So he tries and gets a history of the game and then he posts that in the museum and on the website, which I think is really interesting. And That is cool, although a lot of people's stories would just be, my mum threw it in the bin. Yeah, yeah, I, am, I imagine. But, you know, maybe he'll get a little bit more insight of like, you know, oh, this game was my, my second ever, you know, Famicom game and I loved it, blah, blah, blah. And then I traded it in or, as you say, my mum chucked it out or whatever. Um, but like I just like I said earlier on, I just think there's something quite like you know, I don't know, quite fascinating about it. I mean, it's, it's uh, very unique because like you know, writing on the top of the cartridges and stuff that that's not something I was used to. But having uh, a manual with a name written in it, yeah, or, or inside a box or something like that, or some weird sentences, I always enjoyed buying something off eBay. And then opening a manual and being like, oh, look, there's hints in here. Yeah. Homemade hints, you know, from yeah. somebody. Yeah, it's not something me and my, my brother did. Um, but I remember um, at my old job, um, this was, you know, when these things very rarely happen. But a friend at my old job was like, oh, I've got a load of N64 games you can have. And she gave me the carry bag of them. I offered her money and stuff. She's like, no, you can just have them. And I went through it all and she had a name written on every single one of the N64 cartridges like down the side of them so you know people did do it you know and obviously this guy's made a whole museum about it so maybe it was more common in japan for them to write on the label than in the manual but i agree with you there ravi i, I remember cousins and friends and stuff writing all over manuals and especially cheat codes and stuff like that 
in them. I used to write on my games because um, there was, I remember at school, I loaned a game to a kid at school called, um, do you remember the game Yi Ya Kung Fu? Oh, it was like, yeah, a, rings a bell. Yeah, mid 80s. Oh, at fighting least you game. spoke about it before. <laughs> wasn't amazing, but I had it on the Commodore Plus 4. Yeah. And I remember a kid at school want, wanted to, to borrow it off me. And he gave me another game uh, called Spiky Harold. Mm. <laughs> Nostalgia did a video on this a few years ago. And um, I'd, I'd come down with the flu and I was off. And uh, a friend of his came to my house and said, oh, um, I can't remember the kid's name now, but he, he wants Spiky Harold back. So I went, oh, here's the tape then. I said, has he got my Yi Kung Fu back? He goes, oh, no, he didn't give me that. But I'll give you a school on Monday. And then every time I asked him when I got back, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll bring it in next week. I'll bring it in next week. And then some holidays came and he left. Never saw him again. Uh, so I thought, you know, right. And then I've got a feeling I, there was another time I I loaned one of my Amiga games to someone and uh, he denied it and said it was his all along and I didn't borrow it to him. So in the end, I started putting all my initials on my Amiga discs. Right. So when I was a kid. so But the thing is, even though I got rid of all my Amigas, threw them all out, you know, when I went to university and everything, got rid of them all, I've always kept the discs. Because you don't want any reason. kids to get their grubby hands on them and claim they were theirs all That's along. It. It, it must have hit me at a deep, like, psychological level. <laughs> these are mine. I never want to get rid of these discs now. Yeah. Of- I've got discs from when I was 10 years old still. I actually, the uh, I, I just, you've brought a memory back, which was I used to get these UV marker pens, like security UV marker pens, and I'd write my postcode on everything. So it'd be like on the Amiga case, on the CRT, yeah. everywhere. Because I thought it was invisible. But then actually you could see it from a, a certain angle and I, I probably like stained it or, you know, uh, <laughs> damaged it. But like the whole house was just covered in my postcode at one point. To be fair, that is a nicer solution than what most schools did. So I remember at my school, like on the BBC Micros and the Econ Archimedes, they would generally etch the school's postcode into Ooh. it, into the case. So using like a sharp tool. Mm. They'd etch it into the top of it. Melt it like into that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that didn't look nice. I do remember the um, yeah the UV lights, them coming around our school and getting us to write our postcodes on our bikes. Yeah, yeah. In UV yeah. light. I remember that happening quite a bit. So, yeah, that was um, it was definitely something that I think a lot of us did back in the day. But, yeah, in terms of all my original software, I've still got most of it. You know, you need to find the most common name in Japan and then turn up at this museum and be like, yeah, I, I'm this guy and these are all mine. Like, yeah, just watch everyone fight over them. Yeah. But, um, I think it is a cool idea, though, because we've all got stuff we have let go of. I mean, you know, I've, I've talked about it before on the show that I'm not proud of it. You know, I threw two Amiga 1200s in the bin, uh, threw a Commodore 16 out once, I threw about three Amiga 500s out just in the bin. Stop with the and horror story, kind of hope, Stan. <laughs> oh, it's, it's horrible when I think about it, but I, I kind of hope deep down that maybe one of the bin men like saw it and thought, ah, oh, that's cool, and he kept it. You know, I so it. It, it got rescued somehow. <laughs> yeah, probably one in the crusher, if we're honest. But it would be nice if one day I got reunited with my original machine. You know, that's uh, that is something really nice to think about, isn't it? That people could get their original games back again. I, I, I do, I do love it. Going off slightly off topic there, but just here, but just with a uh, Dan, like you know, Mister Amiga, you know, well-known YouTuber, podcaster, really loves his Amiga. Chucks him in the bin, runs over him in his car. <laughs> yeah, probably done more to destroy Amigas than most of the people on the scene, if I'm honest, over the years. I'm not proud of it, James. I didn't bring it up too much, but I've made up for it since, I think, with about 15 Amigas in my house now. You know, I'm doing my bit. We'll let you off. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, very nice idea. And I think it would be cool to see this um, kind of branching out a bit more, you know, to like British museums. That'd be quite cool, wouldn't it, if... uh, there's something happening over here where you can maybe get reunited with your long lost games. So oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust Brits. Every single person would go, yeah, that's mine. 
Joe Fox, who's he? Yeah. So uh, if you want to read more about that, uh, a good article on Kotaku talking about that, I'll link it up in our show notes as well. Now, this is one thing I never thought I'd read. Someone's got Google Maps working on the humble Commodore 64. Yeah, this is a this is quite a small channel that I follow actually, um, Arctic Retro, and um, yeah, he's he's got some really interesting stuff on there. And then this popped up, which was uh, again Google Maps working on the C sixty four, and we've seen stuff like you know maps, uh, Google Maps that were done in Zelda um, previously, and that was kind of rendered with their graphics. This is like an actual photo, but they've done it at the lower kind of you know the. the the color palette of the C64. And um, it, it looks really interesting. Now, this is actual Google Maps, isn't it? Yeah. Streaming yeah. from the internet with a new device called the, um, I think it's the the Y C64 or the Wix64, which again, I mean, there, there are several of these out there. These are kind of um, network cards you plug into your 64, allows you to get on the internet. I mean, there's, you know, the Y modem. That, I've got a few of them already. Uh, but the thing about this is that makes it quite unique is the the YC64 developers actually have kind of a, a bulletin board style service that you can connect to that allows you to explore a few different services that they provide for the Commodore 64, even things you think would completely defy the hardware limitations of the machine, including, as he shows in this video, um, it's embedded on this Hackaday article that I put in the show notes as well. He's got a fully functional version of Google Maps that streams from the internet that massively downscales the images in the color depth to show on the Commodore 64. But actually, you are looking at satellite photos, maps, and even the coolest thing about this is you can do street view. Yeah, it's pretty mad. I don't know how many people are actually going to be planning their routes on this or, you know, um, trying to spot features. But um, you could zoom in on your own house and look at it on a C64, which is pretty amazing. But also the services that includes like a RSS reader as well. And there's like radio stations and stuff. And I think this device... A Sid Music radio station. Oh, yeah. Sid Sid Music, of course. Yeah. And um, I think this is a really cool little device. I love these kind of ways of expanding, you know, uh, older systems. And, you know, you're not using the... uh, You're not using the original hardware, but you're still kind of going through the C64. You're displaying it, you know, and uh, it seems like a nice little cheap solution. You know, you've talked about in the podcast before that you made a, was it in 3D construction kit when you made a Nottingham Market Square simulator? Yeah, yeah. You were a kid? yeah. I made about two fountains in it and then it was like, no more space. <laughs> but did you ever think that one day you'd be able to use like, you know, actual street view maps on something like a Commodore 64? Because I'm looking at this and I'm thinking there's potential there for like, you know, adventure games. I, there's one thing I haven't told you. There was a thing called a pocket chip, which was a, a device that you could have in your in your pocket and that had GPS on it and stuff. And I'd have a, a live Pokemon map um, mm. for Pokemon Go with like Pokemon's locations connected to Google Map running on that in my pocket when I really got into there. So I could see that it was possible. Yeah, um, because it's just kind of receiving the data. It's just... Uh, the wireless interface really and they've worked out a method of displaying it and i think this could probably go onto many other systems you know you could start seeing google maps all over the place i was imagining you, you walking around the streets with a, a massive commodore crt monitor and a commodore 64 <laughs> no i'd a need a sx64 wouldn't you <laughs> yeah look about yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this new service looks great though as well i mean there's also online multiplayer games 
that you can play. You mentioned that RSS reader and the SID Radio Tunes station on there as well. One thing I think is very cool is it links you up to the um, what's called the CSDB, which is an online database of Commodore 64 programs and demos that you can basically download and stream to your Commodore 64. So really it's like an app store for the 64 that you can stream software to your machine. It's amazing getting connectivity on machines. Um you know, it's when they're offline, you're, you're constantly transferring stuff, but just having access mm. to all of that stuff online instantly, it really like speeds up the whole experience. Yes, there's some really good in- innovation happening in the uh, Commodore 64 scene right now. If you want to check that out, I'll put that video and uh, all the other stories in our show notes as well. Now, speaking of platforms that do get a lot of love these days, of course, uh, a system that didn't sell all that well back in its heyday, but for some reason, I don't know why we all neglected it back then, because today... Pretty much every retro gamer has this machine in their top five consoles of all time. We're talking about the Dreamcast. Mighty, mighty Dreamcast. The Sega Mega Drive 3, as I like to call it. I never call it that, really. But the reason we're talking about this today is a hard... Wasn't there actually a Mega Drive 3, wasn't it? There was, actually. There was a Genesis 3. Yeah, there was. was No one talks about that. Yeah, nobody talks about that. Probably a Genesis 4 in Brazil. Yeah, you know what? I I think there might be, to be honest. But uh, we are talking about the Dreamcast today. Uh, and there is a new game coming out for the Dreamcast. There's always new games coming out for the Dreamcast. It, like you say, Rabbit, it's such a well-loved, uh, like you say, Dan, it's such a well-loved um, console in the retro scene. So we've got a, a hardcore roguelike game. We were talking about this the other week, what a roguelike game is. It makes Ravi's eye twitch a bit when he hears the word roguelike. <laughs> I've just heard it on so many videos and just everywhere now. It's like, my cat is a roguelike um, game. <laughs> a roguelike <laughs> game. Um, but the game we're talking about is Harley Quest that is going to be coming to the Sega Dreamcast. And this is launching on Kickstarter in April. So at about two months' time uh, for a physical release, which is really cool. So this is being worked on by a developer named Ross Kilgariff. And he's actually been working on the game since 2017. Um, And the project was actually um, revealed in 2017. But back then it was called Dungeon Ross. um, And it had a very different aesthetic to it. But now, obviously, Mm. Harley Quest, as you can imagine, Harley Quinn. You know, it's got a kind of like jester medieval look to it. It reminds me of uh, Pandemonium meets Dark Souls. The kind great, of like, great description. A bit, a bit, of, gaunt, yeah. bit of gauntlet as well, bit of gauntlet. kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 a bit of gauntlet, you know, and he's saying, the developer, uh, that it does take elements from the Dark Souls games, um, but then it's got a, um, I think it's got an auto-generating dungeon. So Yeah, a proce- procedurally generated, so yeah. each one would kind of be different. And, yeah, 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 which is uh, pretty cool. Um, I like the look of it. It is, you know, very much the look of like, you know, the fifth gen Dreamcast PS1, obviously with it being a Dreamcast game. He talks about the fact that Spyro the Dragon inspired the look quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Now you say that. Yeah. Because that's because I was like, I didn't want to say it like, oh, it's a Dreamcast game. But it's like, it looked more like a PS1 game. Not. It, it reminds mm. me weirdly of Thrill Kill. Because you're in, in Frilkill, you're kind of in this square box and it's it's got yeah. that kind of style, but uh, obviously it's a lot more family-friendly. Yeah, yeah. The, the graphical style, so not the graphics themselves as in the quality of it, but the style really reminded me of PS1. And it's like you say, it's probably because mm. of Spyro the Dragon. So yeah, I mean, it looks pretty cool, sounds pretty cool. It's uh, got an interesting concept that there's no checkpoints or save files. So uh, death is like... You have to start from the very beginning. You just have to keep playing. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've got to hardcore this one. 
And he says you'll die a lot. You'll die a lot. Video. Well, it's got local two-player co-op as well. So if you're looking for a divorce, you know, you're looking for a game to play with your <laughs> missus <laughs> or a game to fall out with your friend with, then th- this might be the one for local co-op. But it's nice to see the local co-op because if it, yeah. it's, it's you just don't get it anymore. You know, and it, it's frustrating that you have to kind of go go back to retro stuff sometimes to get this stuff. But it's good to see it on a new retro game as well, if that makes yeah, it's, sense. It's coming out for the uh, Dreamcast and the PC. Oh, nice! As well. Yeah, but, um, it's going to work on Mac and Linux as well. Oh, so, wicked! So, yeah, it's. Um, but yeah, I think again, it's you know we've talked about this before. If you're making an indie PC game, it's hard to get coverage. But if you're doing it for the Dreamcast as well, mm. you're going to get guys like us talking about it because yeah. it's cool. And I think it's a really good tactic. And I think the fact that it can run and he's put the effort into making it run on the Dreamcast and the fact that one guy has made this, I think that's an incredible achievement. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's he's been doing a lot of um, like Twitch streams if you want to kind of see work in progress and putting regular clips of that on his YouTube channel as well. So as Joe said, it's going to launch in April, but the, uh, the Kickstarter page is live now. So you can click on the uh, little notify me to follow it and kind of you know get notified when it launches. Um, but definitely want to support. I think it looks like a, a lot of work has gone into this already. So I'll, uh, I'll put that in our show notes. If you want to follow that, now we're going to talk about a, a lost piece of Sonic the Hedgehog history that's been found and that we can all play very soon in just a moment. And also, we're going to call Mario live on the podcast. I can't wait to talk to him. Excited. <laughs> I've got some questions for Mario. <laughs> Before we do that, though, let's just take a second to give a big thank you to uh, our most regular sponsor and someone who's been our biggest supporter for how many years now has bit my book, sponsored this podcast. Oh, God. More than I can remember. Yeah, three, four years. They, you know, Sam's been such a supporter of the show and we're really proud to keep representing. Yeah, and even when we're doing our own book as well, you know, he was a bit of a mentor to us, give us some great advice, didn't he? You know, just an all-around top mm. guy. And we love the work that Bitmap Books do. And one of their books you should absolutely check out, their latest book, it's called I'm Too Young to Die, The Ultimate Guide to First-Person Shooters. Now, this covers the years 1992 to 2002. Now, if we're talking FPS games, that was the the era when it just completely changed everything. 92 to 2002. Like, I mean, I could be biased here because that is literally like my conscious childhood. But that for me is like the pinnacle of FPS gaming. That is like, we saw such a development over those 10 years, you know, kind of like from Wolfenstein and Doom all the way up to like Time Splitters and Time Splitters 2. That kind of like- Quake and Golden Golden Eye. Eye, Everything that in between- just seeing like the development, you know, from those kind of 2D Doom clones, if you will, all the way up until, you know, like you say, GoldenEye and Quake just changed the game. And then just like where, where, you know, where the early 2000s took us, you know, and then obviously it leads into what we've got today. And, you know, I've been playing the GoldenEye remaster recently and I'm telling everybody at work, telling all these young'uns about how that's like, you know, that's the foundations of what we have today. And you learn all about it in this book. It's amazing. Yeah, it goes through even like, you know, the light gun shooters as well. Mm. Kind of what makes an FPS game and why they're so enthralling and their massive influence over 3D graphics. I mean, nothing sold graphics cards back in the day or even today probably like an FPS game does. Or pushed, you know, uh, pushed technology uh, ahead, you know, advances like stuff like transparency and uh, yeah. slopes and uh, stack sectors and stuff. And I mean, they talk to some legends as well. I mean, John Romero, 
He does the foreword in the book, you know, the creator of Doom and Wolfenstein, you know, id Software legend, Scott Miller from uh, Apogee and 3D Realms in there, David Doak, who worked on GoldenEye, 007, and Time Splitters, lots of other legends as well. And uh, this is, like all of Bitmap Books books, they're absolutely gorgeous. The highest quality print, the highest quality paper, something that'll just be a really good keepsake, a real celebration of that genre. So you can check that out right now uh, and the rest of their retro gaming books as well. Why don't you treat yourself uh, to I'm Too Young to Die, The Ultimate Guide to First Person Shooters, and you can see that on all their books at bitmapbooks.com. Now we consider you, obviously Joe, our resident Sega fanboy. I, I, Have you heard of this game before? Sega Sonic Cosmo Fighter? I haven't. And I've got n- I've got no idea what it is. You know, is, is this a, a must play? You know, should this be on the shelf along with Sonic 1, 2, and 3? <laughs> uh, I've never played it. I don't know. Um, I was kind of banking on you to tell us about it. Oh. Uh, yeah, but, but what this was, I mean, uh, I mean, I have done a bit of research. Oh, good man. Quite rare that we do that before we do the podcast, but I thought I might look it up. Uh, now, this is a game that came out in 1993. Right. And this looked quite interesting because it was really a hybrid between a, a shoot-em-up game and a kid's ride. Okay. So it was released pretty much exclusively in Japan originally, as part of Sega's Waka Waku uh, range of games. Okay. So the way you play it is, there'd be, it was a, a 2D shoot-em-up game that you viewed from the top-down perspective, but you sat in this family-sized cabinet that was designed like a spaceship, and the cabinet would shake and move around during the ride. Right, okay. So basically, it, it's a, a shoot-em-up game. There's also a ride. And looking at it, I mean, the kind of say the gameplay is quite reminiscent of something like Gallagher. Okay, right. With enemy ships on the top of the screen and that as well. But the thing about it is, you know, it's Sega, so it's based on Sonic characters. Yeah. Now, this was originally a Japanese exclusive game, but it turns out they did do a very limited run, English language version of this, that bizarrely was released about four years later, just a few of them in Australia. (laughs) Right, okay. Which sounds extremely random, but apparently it wasn't very popular. And for a while there weren't many of these in the wild. Mm. But as it turns out now, like we hear so often these days, there has been a English version of this game found by a collector. And this is someone on Twitter who's called I Am Amazing 100, who's apparently got a uh, possession of the legitimate Sega Sonic Cosmo Fighter arcade cabinet that he's had in his collection for a couple of years now, and he's got the English language version of it, and he's dumped the ROM. This right, thing okay. looks huge. I'm looking at the video of this. <laughs> arcade machine now and it's it's kind of like an outrun one as well you know it moves and it goes like left and right and he's he's posting a picture of it well a video of it on his uh twitter pretty amazing and i think you know the fact that this is a sonic game that the vast majority of sonic fans will never have had the experience of playing before is very cool now he said the rom the rom's been released unfortunately right now you can't play it on MAME, but apparently the next update of MAME will make this playable. Okay, that's cool. So he's kind of working with the MAME developers to make it playable. But so far, people have been kind of messing around with the ROM in uh, hex editors and kind of looking at you know the audio file. Some people have ripped some audio from it as well. So here is a little bit of the audio from the English language version of the game. There you are, Sonic. If you want to rescue your friends, you'll have to down me first. Come on, you guys. Get going. It's just you and me. You're awful. It's all over, Sonic. You're going to pay for this. See you again, Sonic. Speed up. Hi, my name is Sonic. Dr. Robotnik is trying to capture our friends at the space station. Let's take off through space to rescue them. Oh, Dr. 
That is so like uh, worse than folk quality. That's like, uh, why does. But even the even the voiceovers too. I mean, today I think is it Roger Craig Smith? I think is Sonic's current voice. That doesn't sound anything like that. that. I don't think Sonic's ever sounded like that. Sounded like, sounded like Buzz Lightyear. Hey, sound, I'm Sonic. Yeah, he sounded like a proper like dashing hero. Like I'm here to save the day. Like or, or like American sports announcer. Yeah. Sonic. <laughs> but I think you know just the fact that Sonic is such a big franchise and anything that's kind of lost from that that genre mm. is going to be interesting to Sega fans, I think, isn't it? So um, it is very cool that ROM's out there and people are going to be able to uh, play it at home on MAME hopefully very soon. So if you want to link to the ROM, uh, let's stick that in our show notes as well. Now, I know you can't wait for this, Joe. You've always wanted, since you were a kid, you've always wanted to ring Mario, haven't you, and have a chat? I've always wanted to have a chat with him. I've always, I, just want to, I, want, I really want to ask him why does he sound like Chris Pratt? To be perfectly mm. honest, like, what's going on there, man? <laughs> I want to know if he's bold under that hat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it probably will be by now. How old is he? But this is, I mean, obviously the new Super Mario Brothers movie. And um, there's been a new advert for it that came out. Um, was it during the Super Bowl, I think, wasn't it, last weekend? Yeah. And they showed it in the halftime. Which is um, and- a famous time for tech companies to kind of yeah. show off. You know, I, I think Toys.com was the big one that uh, kind of collapsed after the Super Bowl advert but um you know it was lots of crypto companies as well wasn't it last year <laughs> and, uh, and i've yeah. got a feeling it's like isn't it the most expensive advertising oh yeah one of, one of the most expensive i think it is the most expensive in the world yeah i think it's watched by about 200 million people worldwide so you know pretty big audience and obviously we've got the um, new super mario brothers movie coming out in um, two months it's april 7th is a release date as well so this new commercial came out to give us a bit more of a teaser on that but the thing that everyone's been talking about is at the end of the advert, you actually see a phone number where you can call Mario. Now, I've got my phone plugged in here, Joe. <laughs> do you want to talk to Mario? Let's do it. Let's see what he has to say. Well, the number is, let me put this in my phone. So I'm to call America for you here, Joe. So the number is, um, so do the dialing code, which is 001. This is based in New York by the looks of it. So it is a 929 556-2746. I hope you're paying this bill if it's going to New York. <laughs> Thank you for calling Super Mario Brothers Plumbing. It's a me, Luigi. And if you need service, please uh, text us at the same number. You just call 92955-MARIO. That's 92955 2746. Message us about any issues wherever you live. House, condo, mansion. And we'll be sure to text you back right away because at Super Mario Brothers Plumbing, we don't say let's await. We say let's go. Oh, and uh, check our website, smbplumbing.com. We're still working on it, so more updates to come. Bye bye. That's, uh, that was worth the 20 quid. Charlie Day, wasn't it? As, as, <laughs> yeah. as Luigi. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't even Mario. That's Luigi. That yeah. was Luigi. I mean, maybe may Luigi's uh, voice actor, what's his name? Charlie Day is cheaper than Chris Pratt, or is it just because he's doing a better <laughs> job? He of it? did sound more Italian than Chris Pratt, though, didn't he? In that one, especially when he said, it's Luigi. But um, I, I love this website. The testimonials on there are quite funny as well. I was, I was just going to say, I've literally <laughs> just loaded up the website and there's like an about us testimonials careers <laughs> and there's brilliant. also like a broken image um and you click on it and it says error 404 and then comes up with pipes and stuff so it looks like it's a 
in development website as well that they've done deliberately. Which yeah. is, uh, I kind of like the uh, the sketchiness of it, you know. It is a cool idea. This is nothing new, though, in movie promotion. I mean, if you watch the original Ghostbusters, you know, they've got the um, the advert where they go, you know, we're ready to believe you, and their phone number comes up at the bottom. Yeah. Um, back in 1984, Columbia Pictures did the same thing. Yeah. So you could call that number, and it would be the Ghostbusters kind of, you know, basically doing that kind of thing there, you know, as if they were a real company. And I think they actually play those adverts just as they are in the movie on TV. Yeah. Around that time in America as well. So it's it's a tried and tested formula, but I don't know if you guys are the same. When I was a kid, whenever I saw a phone number on TV, I'd always want to ring it just to kind of see, you know. Just, I, like I knew I never could or I'd just get absolutely killed because it was usually like, one pound a minute. <laughs> I'd be like, no. I did that. I did that exact thing, Ravi. It was, I think it was when Ghostbusters 2 came out there was a uh, an advert in a, a comic and it had a phone number at the bottom in America and I actually rang Sony Pictures in California <laughs> from my house phone from upstairs and my mum picked the phone up downstairs at the same time I was doing it when I was talking to them. And I was like, can I talk to the Ghostbusters, please? And I got the bollock of my life. That's fantastic. Can I, can I speak to Venkman? What's his name? Peter Venkman, please. Peter Venkman, please. Um, Slimer there. Yeah, Slimer there. You know what? Going back to the Mario Bros thing, like I've been very iffy about about this film like but only because you love the original so much but, <laughs> but i actually really like this trailer they've put out like you know this advert with the rap like you know where it's like we're the mario brothers kind of thing i quite like that and then also there's a cameo at the end i don't know the name of the actress but the lady who's in the advert talking at the end who's like the customer the voice actress that plays her is the voice actress who played princess peach in the 90s cartoon version of super mario brothers all oh, right it's, it's interesting. It's a nice nod. I just looked in the source code, and there's a Pauster, which is this company that seems to be making these websites, um, and they're doing them for obviously other films. So there's one for Elvis as well that came out. There's a Sam Smith interactive one, and like Trolls as well. And that, it looks like they've been doing lots of these kind of different websites and stuff. So they must have hired this creative agency to do it. Yeah, it's a very good idea, and I think I, I agree with you, Joe, as well. I mean. I do kind of feel like that they they understand what kind of works in these kind of movies now. I mean, you yeah. know, the Sonic films were a template for how to do it, and it looks like these are going to follow that same kind of path, doesn't it? Like they're going to be just fun family films. Yeah, exactly. And I do like, you know, even in just in like, I mean, I know they did it in the original Mario film and stuff, but like on the side of their van, the Super Mario Bros. plumbing logo is the way, you know, the Super Mario Bros. logo is written in the games. And then also... There's like the Super Mario World Mario, you know, like the you know the picture of him from like the ninety the eighties nineties version of him on the side of the car as well on the side yeah. of the van, which I really like. So it's just this silly little attention. And, to the, detail, and the only so. decent five star testimonial was from the bro's mum. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, the rest oh, of them are yeah. like slating him, and the mum's like, "They're very good boys, They're polite, professional, and adorable." <laughs> I didn't know it. I have these visions, you know, when the new Mario movie comes out in April, you know, Jez's little daughter being like, you know, daddy, can we watch it? And he'd be like, uh, no, we're going to watch the 1993 <laughs> superior version instead. Teach her all about Bob Hoskins. Um, but yeah, this doesn't very good. I think we'll have to go see it, Joe. Yeah, we will. We will. Well, so yeah, it looks good. Um, so Mario Brothers movie coming out in a couple of months time. If you want to check that out, um, I'll put a link in our show notes to that. And everything else we talk about, you find it all at theretrohour.com. Now, we have got a very busy weekend ahead. Of course, um, Joe's off on a holiday next week, so um, it's going to be your kind of last day on Sunday before you head away for a week of uh, relaxation. But it's a nice way to go out, because Sunday we're going to be doing our uh, 
latest edition of the Retro Hour After Hours podcast, which is a bonus podcast that we do every single month for our wonderful patrons. Yeah, man. So this will be episode 33, I believe, um, wow. of our Retro Hours, the After Hours, um, where we are challenging each other to come up with some hidden gems from any retro system. But we're going to be talking about our favourite overlooked hidden gems. And and this is the funny thing. It's a bit of an oxymoron because, you know, the amount of hidden gem videos out there now where these games aren't hidden gems anymore. So I think it's going to be quite tough for us. So if, if anybody wants to tune in and uh, come and listen to what we, what, what, you know, what we've got to say, what we can come up with and hopefully come up with some games that, you know, <laughs> nobody else has heard of, which are genuine hidden gems. then you know, now's a good time uh, to sign up. But as well as that on Sunday... On the last Sunday of every month, we also do our uh, Patreon hangout, which is one of my favourite things to do as part of the podcast. So much fun. So, so, so much, much fun. fun. I think we had about 50 people on the yeah. last one, um, which was just absolutely mind-blowing. And, you know, you, you can come along and you can just listen. Um, you don't have to come on camera or you can get involved and, you know, you know, we can all have a chat. And, we, you know, we're always talking about, like, people's retro systems and what they've picked up that week. Or if you're new, you don't have to do this. Like I say, you show off your, you know, show off your museum, if you will, you know, your retro room, your man cave, which is always really fun. And, you know, as Ravi said before, it kind of becomes a bit of a user group for us as well. You know, we kind of, like, help each other out and, you know, talk about, like, you know, different mods and stuff like that that we've done recently and how to do them. Um, it's really fun and, you know, genuinely made friends off the back of it, you know, who I do talk yeah. to and interact with now on like a daily basis on social media, which is just really nice as well. Yeah, so we'd love you to join us this weekend. I mean, if you've heard us talking about Patreon before, maybe you're a regular listener. That is how we keep the podcast coming out every week. It helps us so much. And now would be a very good time to join us on there. You're going to unlock uh, 33 episodes of the After Hours podcast. Plenty of listening here. Joe Triton and Amiga in the latest one as well. Yeah, you get um, um, exclusive access to Discord as well. We've got our own channels in there for patrons. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just an absolutely awesome thing. And you get about 15 minutes of extra news on every week's podcast as well, which we're about to do just for our patrons in a minute. So now's a very, very good time to sign up and join us for the Hangout this coming weekend. All the details to join us on Patreon are at theretrohour.com. Right then, thank you so much for checking out the news. We'll have more of that in next Friday's podcast. And next, we're going to go inside the world of holistic design with our special guest, Andrew Greenberg. He's coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And we can't wait to get some stories about classics like Battles of Destiny, Emperor of the Fading Suns, Hammer of the Gods, and lots more as well, with our special guest of holistic design, Andrew Greenberg. How's it going, Andrew? It's going well. Thanks for inviting me across the pond. I love Nottingham. You're giving me the greatest hospitality out here. Bring me over more often, please. <laughs> Even if it is only virtually, Andrew, it's ah. very nice to talk to you. But I mean, before we get into uh, you know those stories about you know these incredible games that you've worked on throughout your career, I mean, we always like to kind of take it back to day one and find out kind of what got our guests into the whole thing. So, I mean, do you remember your first video game experience and where it all kind of started for you? So I actually, uh, I understand how fortunate I was in the 70s. My school actually had some of the earliest apples. And I got to program my first game in fourth grade, which is really, I, I, even then I understood that that was not an opportunity most people had. So uh, we were playing these crazy text games on the apples, mainly the ones that we were making. And uh, they were horrible, but we had the greatest time doing so. 
So yes, I had played the Atari and all that kind of stuff already, but having computer games that I could make and my friends made playing with my friends made, that was the best. We'd have these ASCII characters running around and we'd try and run them down. We could pretend they were anything we wanted them to be. But uh, yeah, they were just ampersands and hashtags and so forth. And we were driving them down somehow. So uh, Your imagination had to do a lot of work back then. A lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. No, absolutely. So uh, yeah, I loved all the Atari stuff right off the bat. As soon as friends of mine had those machines, we were having a great time with it. But being able to actually make my own and play with the games my friends made, that took it another level. So I was wondering, did you did you like get a system at home and um, uh, were you doing much programming on there? Oh, yeah. I had a very powerful one, a TI-99-4A, a whole 4K <laughs> of, uh, of power in that one. That was tremendous. And um, yeah, so the first things I was doing, saving them to a cassette drive. Uh, and that was a lot of a lot of fun, completely useless garbage that I was doing. But uh, in in my mind, it was incredible stuff. And I was so, so delighted with the TI-94. It was a hand-me-down for my older brother. And I got to do all sorts of wacky programming with it, get my first word processor, dream of making my own word processor, because that thing was a piece of garbage. Just had a, a great time with it. But finally, I upgraded to the C64. And... Um, I, I do have to admit that while I got that with the intention of, oh, I'm going to make all kinds of good games, so many good games on that somehow distracted me from making the ones I was going to make. And the basic on the Commodore 64 wasn't the best, was it? I know the, the no. machine code on it was uh, pretty decent doing, you know, 6502 assembly. But yeah, the basic left a bit to be desired. I remember most people I knew that got into basic had like the Simon's basic cartridge. And right. Did you get into any of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I had the book and I was programming from the book and all that kind of stuff. But yes, that that is an interesting thing I haven't really thought about, that the Apple made the basic programming a fun experience in itself. And with the C64, it really did feel like a drag and like work. So I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. It just wasn't the experience I wanted. And partly, I mean, I, I understand the C64 people wanted to use the power that was there. So use a better language than basic. I was wondering where your uh, fascination with vampires came from as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So this is how I, I get more into games. So in high school, I had the luck to be associated with some gaming companies, Mayfair, specifically go to gaming conventions. This is tabletop gaming. Uh, but my plan was to be a journalist. So studied journalism in college, did internships in Washington, D.C. as a reporter. I mean, heady stuff. I'm interviewing the president, the vice president, whoever. Getting Well, at least throwing questions at him, not interviewing him. Uh, and uh, really exciting. I go to, I come to Atlanta to be a reporter for a legal affairs newspaper. So I'm covering courts and trials and lawyers all the time and um, get a little tired of dealing with lawyers all the time. So I start writing about vampires instead and find them a better class of people. My apologies to all the good barristers <laughs> out there. So but, uh, w were you like interested in the kind of history of vampires and, uh, you know, the different novelizations of, of, of stuff about Dracula and, uh, you know, Whitby and the kind of history of that? Oh, I'd certainly, yeah, certainly enjoyed horror all the way through. Um, and, uh, and certainly Lestat, I mean, the Anne Rice stuff was already great. And uh, all, the, all the cheesy vampire stuff, as well as stuff that tried to be good. Uh, yes, definitely enjoyed all of them, but I also had a strong passion for history, which tied in very well to it. So I had a degree in journalism and a degree in history. And being able to use both of those 
uh, were, were just fantastic. So with journalism, I dealt with power struggles. I'd seen people at their best and worst. And with history, could cover this whole arc of time and combining them into the Vampire the Masquerade role-playing game. For folks who don't know, I was, initial, I was the original developer of that game. was just a great combination. So being able to take these personalities I'd met through journalism, make them vampires, and then track them through the course of time and make their, uh, their egos and their clashes and their, their personalities be part of what shaped history and have history shape them, that was just a phenomenal little mashup. You mentioned about you know how you had to use your your imagination in those early games you were playing. I mean, did you kind of notice the connection between tabletop gaming and the the video game world? We always wanted it to be more so. I mean, so when I'm programming on a TI ninety nine four A, I'm also playing all kinds of fun um, tabletop role playing games: RuneQuest, uh, Shadowrun, Bunnies and Burrows, Space Quest. What we're creating on our imagination is what I want the computer to be able to create for me. And of course, at that point, the power is not there. Don't, I'm not going to talk about the graphics, but just the ability to do more than a Zork. What if I want to go northeast instead of north or east? Well, sorry, you're stuck with north or east, which a good game master could allow you to do. So yeah, or it is it is very funny looking at the computers of today. We can have these incredible open worlds. Love, love what my friends at Bethesda and other companies have created. Just amazing work. But what little we had... Uh, to experiment on with uh, with the, the computer power of the day, tabletop it was just so much grander all the way through then. I think my time in the tabletop industry, I start with Vampire in 90, we published it in 91, and on through today, we've seen that, that mesh where now you really can have just these incredible visions. Solar system spanning games like our own Emperor of the Fading Suns. Do we just take it on, a, on that grand level? Well, that, it, was, it was really interesting because you joined White Wolf Publishing and they were kind of, they were doing stuff like card games as well and they were also doing board games. But then they started to like morph into this video game company. When when did you notice that kind of uh, change in them, you know, Unfortunately, that on was after I left. That was part of why I left. So I leave okay. White Wolf in 95. We've, we're starting to get our computer game strategy together. I'd already started working on computer games. My first one was with Viacom New Media. They were getting into uh, the industry. They just bought a wonderful icon company, which had done Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective and some great mystery games and uh, Deja Vu. So we did Dracula Unleashed. And that was just a blast to work on. Just to tell you how long ago this was, everybody, we released the game on CD, yes. But we had an internal debate, which went on for at least a week, over whether we should make the CD work on dual-speed CD-ROM players, if you remember what those were, are only single-speed. Because we were right at that transition from single-speed to double-speed. Double-speed so much faster, but less information we could do. So well, that's I remember having that. one of those. He used a caddy to load the, uh, the disc. Think, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but before, so, before we get into that, I just, I just want to ask about um, one title, which was a Street Fighter, which was a, <laughs> a, a tabletop game. So it's like that kind of crossover between video games and uh, tabletops. What was it like and how did you get involved in that franchise? That's exactly right. I love the Street Fighter tabletop role-playing game. So I had done this first game. And I got White Wolf to send me out to what was then the Computer Game Developers Conference to make these connections in the industry. So we started building up the connections, and there was the understanding even then that the computer side would be bigger. 
if we could make an effective transition. So I was making all these great contacts, Activision. <coughs> One of our guys actually uh, ends up going over and working with Capcom um, later on, gets hired way over there. Uh, and the relationship with Capcom gets better and better. And uh, I didn't have lead on the Street Fighter role-playing game, but we wanted that relationship with Capcom. We were trying to get them to take on our new werewolf role-playing game as a as an arcade machine. So we say, let's go ahead and license Street Fighter and we'll build this relationship with them. And yeah, the Street Fighter role-playing game, well, what a blast to play, test, pretend that all these characters in Street Fighter had personalities, Chun Li, Blanca, Guile, etc. Um, and this is the same time as that incredible Street Fighter movie comes out. And sorry, I did love Raul Julia in that. It was amazing. So sorry we lost him. Uh, mm. But uh, yeah, so the idea was we were going to have this collaboration with them. We do the tabletop, they would do arcade machine compilations of ours they finally do the dark dark stalkers and dark stalkers meet street fighter we wanted that all to be our world of darkness and dark stalkers and sorry that the internal uh changes at capcom kept that from ever actually happening but yeah that was our our goal to combine it part of why i left white wolf was that there really wasn't a cohesive policy to enter into the computer game market i wanted that to be a core part of the white wolf business and the owners just weren't interested in that they just wanted to license it out and while i'm very happy with some of the stuff that got licensed bloodlines being the main example that my brother worked on uh we just missed so many opportunities that could have been so much bigger so many great vampire games and horror games that could have come out of that area i mean we, we see seventh guest and these other great games coming out of that same time always been disappointed that they weren't the world of darkness versions of that well, Street Fighter, the storytelling game. I mean, I thought that was a really interesting concept, turning a you know, high-energy action arcade game into a tabletop game. And um, it was interesting, the fact that you had special moves in there as well. And, you know, most of the characters were in there too. I mean, were there any ideas that got left out? And how did you go about translating that, you know, <laughs> the Street Fighter 2 into no, and that's a, a great, storytelling game? That's a great look into it because we wanted the character creation to be a big part of it too. Obviously, you had to play the great characters. You had to be able to be Blanca and go insane. We had to have Honda do the thousand hand slap, etc. But we wanted you to have new powers, new abilities, and so forth without it being a difficult game. So I'm a big fan of tabletop games like Champions, which are these great spreadsheet games where you create massive characters using all these points. But, I mean, it can take an hour or so to create a character. We wanted you to be able to jump right in with something you could see yourself battling with in the arcade. I mean, we were those guys who would go in and put our quarter on the Street Fighter machine in order to hold it for a while and keep battling back and forth. Loser pays the quarter uh, and so on. And um, we wanted to be able to translate that arcade experience to tabletop, but also give you the tabletop experience. And uh, I think it accomplished that fairly well. I'm sorry that the relationship with Capcom didn't last as long as the stuff we had ideas for. There's so much cool character and adventure creation stuff that could have come from that. Like you're saying, fast-paced, quick, almost mindless, but then you've got the option to add all this wonderful depth to it as well. Well, he worked with Bill Bridges on the, the classic Fading Suns. I mean, what was it like working with Bill and uh, any memories of that project? Oh, absolutely. Bill Bridges and I have been friends uh, since the 80s. He went to college with my brothers and we met in Richmond, Virginia. There was a gaming group there that ended up having people working at Chaosium, White Wolf, um, and other gaming uh, companies all over the all over the world. So we're still friends and business partners to this day. 
So he, uh, I had him writing for me on Vampire. He did one of our classic early books called Hunters Hunted. And when we were doing the werewolf game, we built that game with a very small team in-house. But uh, then we brought in Bill to manage the entire line. And uh, it was great because he could add this. I mean, a very physical game that he understood and worked well. But then there's the whole spiritual and mental side of it as well. That he really added some incredible depth to werewolf. And when we started HDI, it was uh, my this great story. Again, going back to CGDC, Computer Game Developers Conference. To those of you who haven't been to these, it is now GDC, a massive event in San Francisco. Back then, it was a tiny convention called CGDC in Santa Clara, uh, where all the vampires are, California. And uh, Bill and I went out there as representatives from White Wolf, probably 94. And we met two other uh, game devs in the bar who turned out to be from Stone Mountain. We were then in Stone Mountain, Georgia as well. We'd never met them, had no idea there was a computer game company called Several Dudes Holistic Gaming. They just <laughs> nice night. Destiny were wrapping up Hammer the Gods and getting ready to get Machiavelli, the prince, also known as Merchant Prince, out the door. And we met in the bar and just got to talking, hit it off very well. Uh, Bill and I were very frustrated with White Wolf's inability to have an actual uh, plan for the intellectual properties. We wanted to do something where we could combine computer games, tabletop, and more. And so did the, these two gentlemen, Ken Leitner and Ed Pike. So we decided to go ahead and combine efforts. And we got back to Atlanta in 95. We started Holistic Design Incorporated. And we released uh, Machiavelli the Prince with Microprose. If you remember Sid Meier's old company, it was a delight working with him. And initially, Emperor of the Fading Suns was supposed to be done with Microprose. Unfortunately, they then got bought by Spectrum Holobyte, and all that changed, and most of their external projects disappeared as well. But Bill and I had already uh, decided we were going to create the science fiction game that included all the elements of science fiction we love the most. Cyberpunk, uh, uh, space fantasy, space opera. Um, the, the intricate politics of uh, Star Wars, the, the fun, crazy space fantasy of a Star Wars, and put them all into one big mashup where GMs could use what they want, and we'd have computer games to show it. So Ed Pike took lead on the Emperor of the Fading Suns game. Unfortunately, he ended up having to quit the company before it was released, so it became a big internal team, and Leitner took it over to make sure it finished, but we all worked on the uh, last bits of it. And... Um, we did that with Sega Soft for just a blip in time. Sega wanted to be in the PC market and uh, we were their best-selling game. And uh, unfortunately, we never got good numbers on what the sales were other than telling us we were their best-selling game. Well, we'll go um, We'll go deep into uh, Empires of the Fading Sun soon. Oh. But, um, first, well, was great. <laughs> first, I was wondering about ICOM as well. Um, and how you kind of got involved with them and that point that technology moved on and kind of, you know, the the technology was able to tell a better story with, you know, graphics and uh, FMV and all of these kind of things. Uh, the Icom folks, I mean, I was a big fan of their games on my Amiga back in the day. Uh, Bob Bates, Dave Marsh had just, and others there. I mean, so many really good designers in-house uh, at ICOM. And uh, we were very, I was very fortunate. Dave Marsh had been to gaming stores that were looking to do this horror line, starting with Dracula. 
saw the vampire stuff, loved what he read, and reached out to me directly. So I was very fortunate for that to happen. Uh, and we, uh, we worked together, the scripting design. It was a great dive into computer game design because they'd just been bought by Viacom. So the goal is to make interactive movies. So they want very much the skill set that I, Bill and I had. Bill worked with me on that as well. Uh, the scripting, the look into the understanding of horror, the ability to create a storyline that can go in many, many ways, but not go crazy. Cause frankly, we couldn't film that many scenes. This is a, this is a game with live actors being filmed. So you can only store that much. Everything has to come back to the point. Now, when you do a tabletop game, you say, this is the path we expect the players to go on. Here's some branches they might go. And here's how to get them back to the main storyline. And if they're going to take you right off the rails, enjoy it. Just go crazy and ignore the adventure and go where they want to do. You can't do that in a computer game and certainly not in a game where you've got a set number of scenes that can actually be filmed and stored on the disc, especially if you're only going to launch it with one disc, which we were committed to. So you were getting back to a theme that you brought up earlier the power of imagination in tabletop essentially makes it limitless. You can do anything. We can't do that even now with the computer game. We can make the illusion of it being limitless, but it really isn't. And uh, with, with Dracula Unleashed, we had to really embrace the limits of what the computer could do, even though, I mean, we were amazed. We were putting it on a CD. We could put so much stuff on it compared to the floppy disks of old. But uh, the limitations... It's always interesting how limitations inspire creativity. Hmm. So putting those limitations in place required us to add fun elements, make it more of a chase, make the time more of a, a focus. I mean, time was already an issue. There are things you can do in the daylight and things you can do at night. You're not going to meet Dracula in the daytime. Uh, so you can't win the game <laughs> unless you can track down the lair. But uh, yeah, night becomes this incredible focus for it. And it's... um putting that time, those time constraints on it became fascinating. Making inventory a game in itself, this is something I didn't really understand until later games like Diablo made the paper doll screen an integral part of the game. I've been amazed at friends of mine who will spend hours just putting different armor and weapons on their character, just spend all day on the paper doll screen and then maybe 15 minutes in game to get a new piece of equipment and then back to the paper doll screen. Uh, but understanding that aspect, I mean, in, in tabletop, you love working with the character sheet. But once I put the cool armor on, I'm ready to go on adventure. I'm not swapping stuff out all day long. Mm -hmm. But in computer games, making the character your own does require that visual component as well. And being able to swap out equipment, what am I carrying? What am I able to use in this next encounter, etc.? Becomes a very fun part of the game. We make a joke in tabletop, especially D&D. &D where the fighter's got his golf caddy along. Oh, I'll take the number three longsword for this encounter. Oh, no, give me the number five Vorpal sword for this one. But uh, <laughs> when you've got these specific limitations, really fun, juicy decisions players have to make on what they're going to carry with them, what they're going to use, and so forth. I think I went on a bit of a tangent from your question. But. No, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, we actually had um, Dave Marsh. Oh, really? really? With the icon on that game. On Great it, guy. About two weeks ago, coincidentally, yeah. And it was um, interesting to hear a bit, a bit of his perspective on Dracula Unleashed. I mean, from like the story side of it too, I mean, the fact you mentioned then that you went from, you know, floppy disk-based games to CD. And, you know, CD held like, what, 650, megabytes? It was a miracle. Megabytes? 
Yeah, and like you had a lot of slow motion video in there as well. Right. So I mean, what was kind of the process, you know, of intertwining the story with the the FMV scenes and creating them? I mean, was that like something brand new? I guess something you hadn't done before. Oh yeah, it really was, and required a lot of rewriting as those limitations became clear. Bill and I started with this big vision, and it was a very broad vision from from Viacom New Media on what they wanted it to be, and uh, so we start very big. All this dramatic stuff and, of course, the love interests and great drama and the like. And then it has to compact and compact and compact. And Dave was great, by the way, communicating this whole process as things changed over time with the development of it. And um, uh, I mean, with with both journalism, I'm used to writing right up to deadline. And with uh, the tabletop games, we're writing until it gets torn from our bloody hands so we can go to editing and then lay out into the printer. With this one, we're writing <laughs> right after the moment when the when the um actors <laughs> presenting the dialogue <laughs> so uh yeah uh it was a very fascinating mix of writing for the actors writing for the scene writing for the constraints writing for the genre and i i definitely admire dave's ability to keep this all under control because uh, he was clearly getting different directors from Viacom. Viacom came in and bought Icon with this broad vision. And then as they saw what was really involved in making games, it started to tighten and tighten and tighten. So. Well, em- Empire was a really interesting title. Mm-hmm. Like, um, had some very deep politics in the game. And uh, it, was, it was quite involved. And playing a game like Civ, um, you know, the politics are really kind of simple. And then it's like just either win through war or stuff like that, especially back then. Um, Was this designed to kind of make it stand out from other strategy titles? Yeah, you're, you're quite right. And also all of us at Holistic were big history fans. War and diplomacy go hand in hand. You can win a war and lose the peace. You lose the peace treaty process. So we wanted to make it clear that the fate of humanity was significantly influenced by the war, but that wasn't usually going to be the final decider, the final decision-making process. The treaty process is going to have its role. So how do we incorporate that into a game, especially when we've got to have AI try to handle the diplomacy? So Emperor of the Fading Suns, we started it with a plan to do it with Microprose and Sid Meier's. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, they got bought by Spectrum Holobyte night. Uh, Sid Myers is incredible, but I'm still saddened that he had to give me the news that they couldn't finalize on Emperor of the Fading Sun. So we had to find the new publisher. We're very grateful to Sagasoft for taking it on, but A, they were not microprose. They did not have their experience in uh, in strategy games. And B, they were under corporate constraints as Sega started saying, wait, what are we doing in PC games? And began losing more and more resources and people as we were working with them. So... Uh, for instance, uh, the our, we we were a company who publishers would handle the playtesting, and the idea of having Microprose playtesting for the Fading Suns versus SegaSoft dramatically different. I appreciate what the folks at SegaSoft did and could do, but they just did not have the Microprose expertise. So anyway, uh, yes, the idea was very much to have more robust than war decides what's going to happen. And I, I'm a huge Civ fan from Civ One on. Again, played the heck out of that on my Amiga. Uh, but uh, the um, we had already released a couple of straight-up war games, Battles of Destiny, Hammer of the Gods. Hammer of the Gods, we had alternate victory conditions. You didn't just win by killing, but 
battle was uh, the path to glory because you're Vikings. But then with uh, Machiavelli, the prince, battle is very much a sub part of it. You're basically a mix of Marco Polo and the, the um, and the Medici's out of uh, Italy rising to glory in the in the Renaissance, commissioning art, but you're also exploring the world, setting up these great trading routes. You get involved in the politics of Venice. You start getting involved in papal politics in Rome. And uh, there's this strong diplomacy aspect that um, is important. One of the things that you had a lot of fun with was you could slander each other. So you had insults you could cast upon each other. You're the uh, son of a fishmonger and much, <laughs> much nastier Shakespearean ones. I won't mention since this is probably G-rated. I, you know, I, I love that because like playing Civ, it would always be peace treaty and then, okay, it lasts for like 26 turns and you just have to build your army up so they don't attack right. you. Um, and, and that was really the only dynamic, but having that kind of insulting and stuff like that really adds a, a personality aspect to it. You're absolutely right. It, it makes you feel these. It, it really gives the AI better personalities. They didn't get in Civ until much further down the line. So, yeah, with Emperor of the Fading Suns, we wanted building up that military machine to be part of it. I mean, it's a 4X game. You are exploring. You are ex- expanding your control over resources. You are then exploiting those resources to get you ready. But part of that exploitation has to be your relationships with the other players in the multiplayer version or with the AI. You need some allies. You have to have allies. Then you can turn all of them against one opponent and hope that you end up getting their vote scepter, the loser's vote scepters out of it. You can win the game without winning many battles if you're good at the diplomacy. And you can be. You make deals with the Patriarch. You make deals with the Merchant League. You make deals with enough of the other houses. And the funny thing is, and we we try and keep this secret, that's the easier way to win the game because... (laughs) If you're at war with everybody, when you declare for emperor, there's this 10-turn phase. When they get to try and kill your your uh, your emperor-to-be on the planet Byzantium Secundus, suddenly the, the, the throne world becomes a place for war. And if everybody's ganged up on you, you're going to lose that, and you're going to be right back where you started, minus a noble and your fort on Byzantium Secundus. So and it was... It, it, well, it's really ahead of its time as well because now you look at Civ and stuff and they're trying to implement stuff like that and they've got, you know, religion and uh, uh, religious fighting and, and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it was a really ahead of its time concept, I think. Well, you'll be amused by this. that The whole idea for the whole Fading Suns IP, intellectual property, came from our discussion at GDC where we met on what would religion look like thousands of years in the future. And while what we present in Emperor of the Fading Suns isn't what we came up with in the bar, uh, that's actually what what started it up. And and, uh, the idea of religion and spirituality and how does that impact humanity is a core part of the entire Fading Suns line, as well as Emperor of the Fading Suns. I mean, he had the idea of religion and churches, like banning certain technologies and that, you know, really stood out. I mean, was it like a reaction to that gameplay mechanic? Did you get any kind of feedback on it? Uh, people who want more of it and people who want less. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, everything we get in gameplay is, uh, it's always, I, this mechanic should be nerfed or this mechanic should be expanded. And then you have to dig into what does a player really want to see? And it seems mm. to be like this 50, 50, we want more of the religion in the game and we want less of the religion in the game. So we'll err on the side of more of the impact of religion on humanity in the game since it's had a bit of a role in our real history. 
But um, it is that whole prescription part is fun because the tech tree, you can follow a number of different ways up the tech tree to to succeed. You can go straight for spaceships because building better spaceships is very important. You can make better uh, infantry units. You can go straight up the crazy theurgy or uh, psychopharmacology for creating uh, chemical shock troops and dervishes, which have their own ability, psychic attacks and so forth. So if you get the patriarch to prescribe these, a core part of somebody else's tech tree, you've really messed them up. And suddenly the church is against them with all of its influence and power and inquisitors coming to burn the labs. So, and it can backfire on yourself if you suddenly realize you need to research those technologies. Now the inquisitors are looking at your labs. So a lot of fun. Again, how do you give players more fun decisions they can make? Do I take a risk and go for these high power techs that have been prescribed? Or do I go for the low power ones and risk that someone who's ignored the patriarch will just steamroll my units? Was it hard getting that balance, especially with like lots of different units and different abilities? Ah, balance. Um, Yes, absolutely. Because there are a large number of them. Now, we love multiplayer games. All of our games have been, with the exception of one recent one, have been multiplayer. And in multiplayer, the best balance is you see someone else getting in the lead, everybody else gangs up on them. When you got AI, much harder to do that effectively. You, uh, when you realize what techs the uh, AI are going for in, in, uh, in a single-player game, you can definitely mess with their decision-making by getting the patriarch to prescribe some of those. The AI is not nearly as good at that as you will be. But fighting against the AI can still be a very interesting challenge. You mentioned before, you know, that multiplayer was, uh, you know, really the way to play it. I mean, what were the, the considerations needed for good multiplayer in the game? And was it tricky to kind of set that up? Definitely, definitely tricky. Uh, it's not a game. You mentioned the game Empire before. Big fan of the game Empire and the versions of it that came out. <clears throat> Uh, over the years. But again, everything is pretty completely balanced. And we did the same with our Battles of Destiny game. And we start getting away from that with Hammer of the Gods. You can play humans, elves, dwarves, um, uh, shoot, blanking on my own. Anyway, but each of them has their own win conditions and their own specialty units. So we start changing that idea of everything being the same, which makes it easy to balance and giving them all specifics, saying, how can we make this a good competition in multiplayer. And I will argue, and don't let any of my players hear this, so all your players, cover your ears now, that a fun game is more important than a 100% balanced game. Okay, you can all uncover your ears and listen to the rest of this. So making all of these different races fun and ensuring that they're competitive is key. When you have two players in there, That's a little rough. As soon as you get three in there, that's kind of the golden point where they can provide the balance if it is missing in the game itself. Now, I like to think in our games, we have crunch numbers and really focused on getting the balance right. But in different players' hands, that will always change. I I can balance the game as much as I like, but I can't balance the players. So you might have an experience where the Dakados are just weak because they've got uh, all their planets, all their resources start on different islands they have to get to. Whereas the Lee Halan kind of have this one world 
that's pretty well linked by deserts they can quickly travel through. But I would argue that Akados have certain units and other things that give them a big advantage uh, in other ways. So in someone else's hands, the Akados have a big advantage over the Lee Halan. So one thing we tried to encourage is a lot of different styles of play. And there is no one best route to victory. Now, some of the players will have argued with, with us on that, especially in the some of the older versions of the game. I think with the current rebalance that we launched, by the way, I didn't think we talked about this. There's a new patch on GOG. For those who don't know, Emperor the Fading Suns came out in 1997. We released the 25th anniversary patch last year. And uh, we just, enhanced version, yeah. Yep, Emperor of the Fading Suns enhanced, and we just released a new patch uh, on GOG, and the new version should be up on Zoom platform pretty soon as well. So anyway, with that said, I think with the rebounds we've done, we've added more ways to keep more ways for all these different strategies to be valid, and maybe not one hundred percent equally valid, but within a good playable ratio. And it's, it's always fun to put your own restrictions on it. Can I do this without uh, researching the really nasty pestilator artillery and plague bombs? Can I do this without getting uh, psychics and making the church mad at me uh, and trying those out? But, but what we've tried to do is give players a lot of different ways to enjoy the game. And that's the feedback I love hearing when players come up with new ways I never thought of that make the game so appealing to them. You know, you mentioned that it was a 25th anniversary and, you know, the game has been kept alive all that time. I mean, do you think it was in part because of modders and the user-created content? I mean, was that a big part of keeping the community together? Oh, thank goodness for the modders and UGC user-generated content. Yo, absolutely. And uh, one of the core members of the team that's been doing the patch, uh, Matt, was one of the biggest modders with his, his very popular Hyperion mod. And, and this is something that I kind of knew getting into tabletop. But realized going out to conventions and meeting people who are playing the games, I loved what I was doing. I mean, we won awards. People thought this was the greatest thing since sliced vampires. But then I would hear what players came up with. I'm going, I would never have thought of this. This would never have come to mind for me. I'm glad they're doing it this way. But holy cow, that's wacky. The best thing about games is how players make them their own. I think this is true of all games. When we play... I'll go back to this game, Empire. For those who don't know, it's a classic 4X game. You start with a city, you build, you explore, you expand, and the AI or other players are doing the exact same thing, the exact same units, no tech tree. You're just doing the units you can get and grabbing cities as quick as you can, and it comes down to your strategy or sometimes some lucky rolls that the computer is, is handling. But um, giving modders the map editor for that suddenly made it a lot more interesting. And we did that with Battles of Destiny, our first game where you could we ship the map editor with it so players could make their own maps. And that was great to see. And realizing they're going to come up with stuff I'll never come up with. Uh, we did a little bit of that with other games. With Emperor of the Fading Suns, that's where we really did our best of getting those tools into the user's hands. And I love playing the mods. I love seeing them being created. I love seeing stuff I never would have thought of. Uh, people like Matt, uh, who worked on Hyperion, that their level of creativity using our tools, so delightful. And it, it is a blessing to have them out there. Just I love playing what they create. I mean, in the end, 
we used to joke in the tabletop world, we all got into the game industry out of graft and corruption because we go to conventions, we've got our new game, and what's the main thing I want to do with my game? I want to trade it to somebody else for their game so I can play it. So I wanted a big stack of a $500 worth of books so I didn't have to spend $500 on games. And I just want to play more people's games. And it's, it's also true with the, with the computer stuff. I want to see cool stuff other people have made as much as I want people to be playing what, I'm, what I made. I used to go to my uh, local games workshop store and they'd be doing huge tabletop battles and I'd start bringing out like models of 1940s cars and stuff and they'd just be like, get out of yeah. here. You know, oh, I was yeah. like, yeah, that's really cool. That kind of user, user creativity. Well, um, another title that you worked on, which uh, was quite interesting, was uh, Star Trek Starfleet Academy as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. was that kind of in- going back to that like FMV area with, you know, William Shatner and George Takai and stuff? What what was it like? And um, uh, what was it like getting onto the kind of Star Trek franchise? So that is probably my greatest claim to geek fame which is that I am part of the team that wrote the last lines of dialogue Shatner has ever delivered as Kirk. If you remember, Paramount killed him off in generations and he's never been back in any Star Trek stuff, except we already had him under contract with Paramount's approval to be in Starfleet Academy. So the last lines of dialogue he's given as Kirk came in that game. So, yeah, I mean, obviously a huge Star Trek fan going back to childhood, back when it was only classic Trek. Uh, and of course then next gen just makes it again, so much more wonderful. It was a great experience. And again, it comes out of the, the tabletop computer game side where after we couldn't really make a go with Capcom, I tried to make a go with, uh, and why am I blanking on the name? Interplay is it? Interplay. All I can think of was Intel. Sorry. I've been watching too much stuff on chips recently. (laughs) Yeah. Interplay. Great company. Uh, Rusty Bukert, a lot of good people, a lot of excellent people over there. So they were fans of Vampire as well. I met uh, Rusty out at Game Developers Conference and start trying to pitch them on doing the World of Darkness license. Uh, And he also says, well, we've also got the Star Trek stuff we need good writers for. Can you come in and help with that? So the Star Trek stuff was great. Again, a wonderful example of the constraints you have to work under. One of my favorite things. Thankfully, we didn't have to do it. We had a Paramount had put a lady, Juliet Dutton, in charge of licensing at that point, who was a joy to work with. She had great ideas. She loved Trek, smart lady. But before her, they had to do what they called putting in the ducks, where apparently in one previous game they had done, every uh, approval they went through with, with a Paramount, Paramount just took something vital out. And they said, look, whoever is over there at Paramount is just trying to justify their job and taking things out. What we're going to do we're going to have this scene where when the Enterprise flies through space, you're going to see a porthole and you're going to see ducks flying by them in space. <laughs> and we're going to try and get this other thing through that we think is core to the game, but they're probably going to complain about. Sure enough, they submitted that. And the only request back from Paramount was take out the ducks. So they got through the thing that was key and they took out the thing they were going to have to take out anyway. Nice uh, distraction technique. <laughs> exactly. The person Paramount felt they'd done their job. They justified their existence and could go on. So again, learning constraints just amazing on the computer game side and being able to be creative with them. So I wasn't able to work, I'm sorry to say, on the ship-to-ship combat part of it. That was all done internally in interplay. We were doing the script and the storyline and trying to make that as fun and as interesting as possible. There were huge, even in those days, there were huge Bibles from Paramount on what you could and could not do. 
And uh, now apparently they're just tremendous. But uh, memorizing those, being able to work, and more importantly, finding the things those Bibles could inspire you to do. How do you do the Kobayashi Maru, which now is a big part of the TV shows, shows as well? Obviously, we had to implement that in Starfleet Academy. So how do we make that a fun thing to do and stay within the Paramount brand? Because while Kirk famously cheats to win, Starfleet officers don't cheat. <laughs> so what can we do in this case? How can you beat the only thing that Kirk ever beat? Because players don't want to lose. Players want to win Kobayashi Maru, but you can't win the way that Kirk did. We have to find a way to give that a satisfying experience to players. Um, all of those different aspects. And then, yeah, getting to write for Takei, getting to write for Shatner, Nimoy. Yeah, that was that was tremendous. Well, and another title that you worked on as well was a, a Warhammer title, and it's kind of returning back to that like tabletop area as well. And um, what what was that like what, working with Warhammer? And did you end up coming to Nottingham and uh, kind of checking out the stuff there? Well, we had to kick all the model cars off the miniatures table. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no proxies in our games. So, yeah, uh, we're gamers. We love the mini side as well. HDI, we published a few mini games of our own. And we were uh, fortunate that, that the group Mindscape had, was working with SSI. We had a friend there, who, again, a big fan of our, our games. They'd just gotten the uh, Warhammer license and had to get games out quickly. So they reached out to us and others to get these moving. And we did Warhammer 40K Final Liberation, uh, also available on, on GOG. Uh, and working with GW, a lot of people have horror stories of it. We loved it. Andy Jones was there at the time, a number of other great people we got to work with. Uh, just a pleasure to deal with because they were, I mean, they had this great license. They had some resources and they had a huge passion for the games they were creating. So Andy came out. I did not get to go to Nottingham. My partner, Ken Leitner, got that trip, had a great time. Uh, his favorite part, I think, was the uh, pub in the basement of the Games Workshop headquarters for some reason. But uh, we had a lot of fun playing with the minis uh, as much as we could. Like I said, we were already minis fans, but we had to grab all kinds of the stuff at that time to buy it. So this is the era when 3D is starting to come into computer games. We did a little bit of 3D modeling for Emperor of the Fading Suns, but mainly for the introductory video and to create the models. Uh, in the game, it's traditional 2D art. For Final Liberation, this is going to be the first 3D Warhammer game. Uh, there was a series at that point that SSI had been doing uh, of World War II tank games, mm. uh, the Steel Panthers line. And we wanted to base it around that. But in that game, you've got tanks and men. In our version, because it's epic 40K, you've got titans and orcs. So you've got these things that are 10, 20 stories tall and little people running around at the same time. So we're having to fit these models on stage. I remember one of our artists screaming because we told him that he had to make his orcs eight pixels. He had eight pixels to build an orc. He pulled it off. But yeah, the idea that the orcs and titans and um, uh, other war machines all had to be on screen at the same time was, wow, an interesting combination and these great fantasy weapons you could combine one of the things we realized with that game was 
because we're not doing really a traditional 4x game it's more a tactical style game we have to remove some of the juicy choices we used to do yeah when you take areas you do get new resources and the like but resource accumulation unit creation etc aren't really the goal of this game the fight had to be the goal i mean it is warhammer of that period the battle had to be the things we had to make the battle as fun as possible in many ways not only do the units have to be cool and those immediate combat tactical decisions have to be cool but each fight had to be a puzzle you had to solve as well your brain had to work on multiple levels you had to plan strategy and tactics to be effective in that game and i think that's what a lot of the fans really loved about it they it's really hard when you got your minis to do a long-term campaign because at some point the cat's going to knock them all off the map anyway. But Because uh, you got to play these for months and months. But with this, you could do that thing you'd always dreamed of. Start with a small core unit of Space Marines and build out and finally get those Titans and do great battles and so on. So just a fun ability to build. And, and one of the issues in games is how do you teach the game? So this was a nice way to give you that core bit to start learning in the first scenarios until you're experienced enough to really make good use of the titans and the like and if 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 you look at like um games workshop titles as well that they, they were very hit and miss back then there, there were some successes there were some um ones that weren't so big and then some w- which were unreleased but um the kind of aspect and the angle that you have on it um with the 3d landscapes that that was used like a lot later on it went on to like titles like dawn of war and stuff like that. So uh, it, it really was kind of a, a groundbreaking uh, Games Workshop title. Yeah, we definitely think so. We're glad there's still so many fans. That That's another one we wanted modding stuff out. We had this whole list of expansions. I mean, there's so much stuff in the Warhammer universe to build from. Chaos was going to be the next one. I think we put some of that out. But then, yeah, then Mindscape uh, lost the license. So, so much for the rest of those. Um, but uh, yeah, that's one... I mean, you have issues because GW owns the IP and we would own the engine, but then it's also going through Mindscape. It really becomes a pain for modders to work on. Something like Emperor the Fading Suns, where we own everything, is so much easier for modders to work with because we can say, yeah, you can't make money on this because that puts our IP at legal risk, but you can definitely do it. it it's, it's so much easier that way. And, but boy, would I, did I want to see what modders would have created with those, uh, those epic tools. Well, a really interesting title came out in 2002, um, Mall Tycoon, which was a you know business simulation game where you got to design your own shopping mall. And where did the idea of that come from then? And how did you want to kind of define yourself from the, the other tycoon games that were out there? Uh, again, the 3D side is an interesting part of this. So the, we were working with Take-Two. Take-Two had bought Talonsoft Interactive, which was a really good strategy game developer. And we were trying to republish our old Machiavelli the Prince game with them as Merchant Prince. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the old Talonsoft folks who made it such a great strategy company ended up leaving after the Take-Two buyout. But we now had this relationship with Take-Two. Take-Two wanted to build Sims. We love doing economic engines. Machiavelli the Prince, really powerful economic engine for the time. We'd had a lot of fun with that. And for the Fading Suns, not as powerful, but the economic engine underlying it. And they're a lot of fun to make and tweak and play with. Talk about balance. Balancing an economic engine is a whole new level in... Uh, <laughs> algorithms and and mental contortions so we were enjoying tycoon games obviously sid's railroad tycoon played the heck out of that on the amiga as well and tycoon games were going through a renaissance at that point so in talking to uh take two they want us to pitch some more ideas to them we pitched them department store tycoon we settled on 
multi-coon, and then the budget started shrinking. That, But in the end, that game ended up making us more than any of these great classic strategy games. Lowest budget we'd had for a game by far, painfully low budget, but uh, great, great sales on it. So it's an interesting one. Graphically, it was the first 3D tycoon game. So everything mm. we're doing in this, we're doing with 3D, moving around, connect the pieces better. That was an interesting exercise. And we'd hope would be our real transition from uh, 2D to 3D games. But the economic engine, as as the folks left Talonsoft and more of the old Take-Two folks came in, the idea became more, this has to be targeted at young girls. You can't be complex. I disagree with that. I think young girls are as capable of handling these game ideas as anybody else. So, but mm-hmm. what we ended up having to do was put all this economic complexity under the hood and it's there. And we got these emails when the game finally launched, it had popularity all across demographics, which is why it sold so well. It sold, like I said, our best selling game by far. That's uh, uh, yeah. I bought a hybrid Honda out of that. called it my multi coon mobile. Not exactly the same car as the doom folks gotten like, but uh very happy with our. <laughs> well, it, spawned, it spawned a couple of sequels, didn't it? it the game. Indeed, so, yeah, it it well. did indeed. And again, with yeah. lower and lower budgets, that was an odd story. But um, we we kept all that economics under the hood. You could tweak all the marketing aspects. Are you going to go for an older audience, younger uh, demographic, males, females, rich, poor, etc.? All this demographic stuff is in there with the store constructs, how you market it, etc. It's all in there, and you can tweak all these. Uh, elements if you go under the hood it's available but most people couldn't see that the folks who did see it would write in loving it there was another game at the time that i really enjoyed called capitalism which is nicknamed mba in a box because wow did he go in depth on what you could do we didn't put nearly as much in as he did but there was a lot there that could you manipulate to get what you wanted in fact uh my wife uh teaches gerontology uh, especially about designing elderly care facilities. And we used the game to demonstrate how you could have a facility to specifically attract an elder demographic. And we could pretend that you had this elderly care facility that was also a shopping mall. And she could use it to demonstrate how you build for an older demographic in her classes. And we had a lot of fun doing that. There was so much under the hood in that game that unfortunately 90% of the folks who played it never saw it. But the 10% who saw it, we were getting emails from folks loving that. I can't believe I can do all these things with it. When you schedule marketing campaigns, what kind of uh, stores you're attracting and putting in there, um, how you put it together, all of these different elements. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun to design. It, it did sell really well. To, take Two was even surprised at how well that one sold, but then they kept trying to cut budgets, which is why we weren't on the next two. They, we Multicoon itself had an incredibly low budget and then two and three were built on even less. Well, Andrew, what are you working on these days? Anything anything coming up that you can tell us about? Obviously still enjoying working on Emperor of the Fading Suns. I think that's getting ready to launch soon on Zoom platform, and the patch just went up on mm-hmm. uh, GOG. Um, I do run the uh, Game Developers Association in Georgia, which is uh, essentially a near full-time job. We uh, built the industry here from five studios back in 2005 to over 160 today, made it one of the top ten places for video game development in the United uh, States. In addition, um, Georgia has become a big place for films. So in my county, one of the two counties that make up Atlanta, I chaired the Entertainment Commission to bring more films here. I mean, Black Panther, parts of Black Panther filmed here. Godzilla was filmed here. Venom, all this kind of stuff. 
love being able to work to get those on in. And a friend of mine are now starting an accelerator for game technology. You're one of the first groups to hear about this. A friend of mine has started a number of very successful business accelerators, CreateX at our Georgia Institute of Technology here, um, NeuroLaunch, which deals with health startups, and CyberLaunch, which deals with cyber security startups. One of the big areas that has problems getting addressed is technology for games. We have this incredible technology like Unreal and Unity and Discord and so forth. It really came up to work with games that are now everywhere. But finding traditional business accelerators to understand them and get them in the hands of, of game devs to test them and talk about them, really lacking. So another friend of mine who's been in game dev for a while and I are, are starting this, we're going to be funding the companies to 150000 each. We're going to be doing our first cohort going to start applications for that this spring and the idea is to have new startups get them to build their technologies and be able to get them immediately in the hands of game studios to put the technologies to use instead of having them need to spend all this time just finding the customers getting customers to test it and so forth since we've already got so many good studios so really excited the technology has always been an interest well a core part of the video game side those limitations yeah. what we can do as we start removing more and more of those limitations, we allow developers to do more and more really cool things. I'm looking forward to putting new tech into devs' hands and seeing what gets created as a result and me getting more fun games to play if I ever have time to do so. <laughs> That's always a challenge, isn't it? Hours in the exactly. day. <laughs> well, Andrew, best of luck with that. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And of course, I'll, I'll link up the, the enhanced version of Emperor of the Fading Suns um, in our show notes as well, so people can go and check that out. Thanks so much for coming on and reminiscing with us over the last hour. It's been wonderful to talk great. to you. Glad you got Dave on. That's, that's fantastic. If folks want to check out more, the Georgia Game Developers Association is ggda.org. And Holistic Design is holistic, H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C-dash design.com. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate the chatting.